0: you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 John. You'll find that on page 1021 if you're using the church Bible. And we've just finished our series in 1 Peter. We are moving into 1 John. And we are just going to look this evening at the first four verses, the introductory section of John's first letter. And we are going to read verses one through four tonight, First John 1, one through four, and as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. Here are the Apostle John, one of Jesus's beloved disciples, one of that inner band of disciples that the Lord Jesus took with him to many of those special places to show them more of his messianic glory, writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and testified to it and proclaimed to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our, and some manuscripts say, so that your joy may be complete. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Standing before King's College, University of London in 1944, C.S. Lewis gave what is now one of his most memorable lectures and speeches. He was speaking at the graduation of King's College and addressing students who were going to go out into the world and were about to embark on new um, opportunities and exciting opportunities to begin careers and to enter in on their lives in the world and all the things that lay ahead of them, the excitement that lay before them. Lewis delivered his talk, which was titled The Inner Ring, and in that talk, which is more of a warning than it is an encouragement, Lewis explained the nature of the world to that graduating class at King's College, and he explained to those students to whom he was addressing that as they went out into life, there would be all of these inner rings in society, and that as they had already discovered in their classes and as they had already discovered in their dorms, as they had discovered with their friends that there were these inner rings of fellowship. And Lewis, in a masterful way, explained the nature of these inner rings. He said that no one would call them anything. They wouldn't have any formal names. There wouldn't be any formal admission. Sometimes they would be called by you and me and Tony. Sometimes it would be this group and that group. And Lewis went on to say that... You don't speak about the inner rings because to talk about it means that you're an outsider. And to talk about not being in the inner ring and about there being an inner ring would mean that you might uh, ruin the opportunity for the next conversation that you have with someone in one of those inner rings to bring you into that inner ring. And Lewis would go on to talk about how uh, once... Uh, a young man or a woman would go out into the world and they would attempt to get into an inner ring. They would find themselves in one of the inner rings, one of the social circles that they wanted to find themselves in, and they would then find that there was another and another and another and another and that the ring they were in was just part of a satellite and an orbit of lots of inner rings and that they could never get into the ultimate inner ring. And that in spending their efforts trying to get into these cliques, we call them cliques, into these inner rings of social fellowship, they would run over friendships and that they would expend energy and they would really, they would would be driven by, they would be destroyed by the inner ring. They would be destroyed by their desire to be in the inner ring and you know, we know what that's like. We know what that's like. We've known it since we were very young. We've known it through our time in college. We've known it in the church. We've known it in the world. We've known it in our occupations. There are always these inner rings of fellowship, and there are people that are excluded, and there are others that are not. And Lewis will say, say that it's it's inevitable that there are these inner rings, and it's inevitable that um, that private conversations have to happen. And he'll say that that in and of themselves, that the reality of the inner ring is not in and of itself an evil thing, but that men's ambitions and drives to be in them often are. Now, as brilliant a lecture as C.S. Lewis's talk was, and it was brilliant, and at the end he ends it by saying, essentially, put your hand to the plow of what God has given you to do. Do your work with excellence, and you'll find that you will excel in whatever you do and make solid friendships with those with whom you share common interest and love these friendships and cherish these friendships and you'll see the fruit of these friendships develop I wish I wish that C.S. Lewis had done one thing I wish that C.S. Lewis had gone to 1st John 1 1 through 4 and I wish that he had said there is one inner ring of fellowship there is one ultimate inner ring of fellowship and that everyone and anyone are welcomed into that ring, and that that ring of fellowship is a ring of fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. John is writing this letter to churches that are not, it seems to us, being persecuted. He's writing this letter to churches that are coming under attack of false teaching. There is, there is. Some kind of false teaching occurring. Some have said it's docetism. Some have said it's Gnosticism. There is no doubt a group that is troubling the believers to whom he's writing and saying, "No, oh, no, no, it's not about Jesus as the God-man and, and the church as the church, but there is the spiritual knowledge that you can attain to that puts you into the select category of people who are really spiritual. And there is a way to really become spiritual through this this knowledge of these these world and universe mysteries. And and we have the true key to knowledge. And they're being rattled. And we know that because John will call them Antichrist. He will say many Antichrist or even now in the world. And the people to whom he's writing, while they're not subject to persecution, the way that Peter's audience was subject to persecution, as we've seen In 1 Peter, they are subject to another attack of the evil one. They are subject to the false teaching that so attacked the first century church. And John's letter is one that is difficult for us to really grasp the full meaning of because John doesn't write an introduction. He doesn't tell us who he's writing to. He doesn't name himself. And you don't even know who he's talking about when he mentions the word that was from the beginning that was manifested, the word of life until well into this book. There are themes in this book. There are, there are loads of themes that John gives us. I think one of the really wonderful explanations of this book, this digestion of all the themes in this book has been captured by one commentator. He said that First John is teaching us these things. He's teaching us that God is light, love, righteous. He is teaching us about the being of God. He's teaching us about being God's child. He teaches us about being born of God, being and abiding in God, in his Son, who was from the beginning, sent from the Father, come in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil, who gave his life for us, who is the propitiation for all, for the sins of the world, our paraclete, in whom is eternal life, in whom we are and abide, whom we shall see as he is, his spirit, The spirit of truth, whom we have, his word, which is eternal. Fellowship with the apostles, with the Father and the Son. Prayer, intercession, confidence even in the judgment. The faith which overcomes the world. Love of the brethren, even to the point of laying down our lives for them. Hope that purifies itself. All of those things are crammed into this book. John gives us a letter that is cyclical in nature. The themes that he introduces reappear throughout this letter so that you'll be reading in chapter one of something that John's telling you about light and darkness and that will resurface in chapter three or chapter five and John is weaving all these things together but essentially, essentially, and I think John opens this book with these four verses because essentially John is telling us that true fellowship and the, the fellowship that God wants his people to know, the fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the fellowship with other believers and the joy that flows from that and the assurance that comes from knowing Christ is all built on who Jesus is and the truth of the doctrine of Jesus. The same truths will surface in Second and Third John. John is the one who tells us repeatedly that it's the doctrine of the Father and the Son. It's the truth about the Son who is the eternal Son who is manifested in the flesh. John, who has a very similar opening to his gospel, that which was from the beginning, in the beginning was the word, harkens back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The eternal Christ is the mystery. He is the key that John is going to tell us all through this book. In fact, at the end of the book, he's going to tell us that the great danger that these believers face is the danger of idolatry and that that idolatry is cured through the person and work of Jesus. And that essentially everything that you need to convince you that you are where God wants you to be is found in Jesus. John is going to tell you. It's interesting in John's gospel that he gives us the purpose at the end of the gospel of John. He says, I've written these things to you that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God. The fourth gospel is written that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God. And here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he'll say, these things are written that you may continue to believe. Your great need and my great need, the greatest need you have, more than paying your rent, more than seeing your kids go through college, more than having the marriage that you always wanted, more than having the children performing the way you wish that they performed, more than having all the experiences of life is to continue believing in the Son of God, in whom you have life. John is writing this book to stir up the minds and the hearts of these believers who are being shaken by false teaching. We're going to see three things briefly tonight. First, we're going to see how that true fellowship and that assurance of fellowship is grounded on the person and the work of Jesus. Second, we're going to see that that true fellowship is witnessed to by the apostles, And finally, we're gonna see that that true fellowship and all that John is saying about that fellowship is to produce a deep-seated joy in you who believe. Notice what John says as he burst in, and I love this because this is almost my favorite of all the letters, and it has commentators confounded. It doesn't look like any other epistle. It doesn't look like any of the other letters in the New Testament. Commentators don't know what to do with it. They don't even know how to categorize it at points. But I love First John because there is some, and I think John's probably an old man when he writes this. He has the tone of a father. He has the tone of an aged, matured saint, a seasoned apostle. And I love that he has an excitement burning within him. As he bursts into this book, it's as if he can't even wait to get into the main content, that which was from the beginning that which was from the beginning. And you're left asking the question, what? What was from the beginning? And John wants to bring that eternal wonder of the Son of God that he had no beginning, that he is the eternal Christ, that he was always with the Father. John tells us in the Gospels that he was face to face, that he was toward the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was face to face with God. And John tells us here, that which was from the beginning. And you say, What was from the beginning? Notice what he says in verse 2 the life. The life was manifest. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. There's something here that only mirrors what John records for us in John chapter 11. When Jesus comes late, he lets Lazarus die. He purposefully lets Lazarus die. And Mary and Martha both come to him, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And and then they begin to coach themselves through the process of hoping in the gospel. And they say, I know that he'll live at the last day. I know that he's going to rise again at the last day. I know that there's going to be a resurrection. I know that Lazarus is going to be raised again. And John records for us those wonderful words that Jesus correcting her because all she knows is the shorter catechism question about the resurrection. And he says, oh, no, no, Mary, it's not just that your brother's gonna rise again at the last day. I am the resurrection. It's not just that I will bring about the resurrection. It's not just that you will be raised because I will raise you up and my father will work that power in me. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And John here records for us, he doesn't even mention Jesus until well into chapter two there, and he says now, the life, the life. Think of that, that Jesus' name is the life. Think of Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress when, when uh, Christian has been reading the scriptures and realized the judgment to come and the judgment he deserved for his sin, and he's realized that there's the hope of redemption, and he, he plugs his ears And he begins to run. It's one of the most wonderful descriptions at the beginning of the Christian life ever. He plugs his ear and he says, life, life, eternal life. And John is telling us Jesus is the life. John's telling us that the totality of Christianity is built on the person of Jesus. Let me say this this evening. God the Father did not die for you. God the Father did not die for you. God the Holy Spirit did not die for you. God the Father did not die to redeem you. God the Holy Spirit did not die to redeem you. Jesus is the mystery of all true saving fellowship and life. He is the life. He has life in himself. He says that that he will raise up all that the Father gives him that he will give eternal life to as many as the Father give him, that he has in himself fullness. I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus and to think Jesus Christ has an infinite supply of grace and mercy and power and life. He is the life. He is God. Everything in this world has life because of Jesus. You and I right now only live and move and have our being because of Jesus. We are only breathing God's air because Jesus enables us to. And spiritually, there is no life outside of Christ. He is the source of all spiritual life. It was Jesus that said to the disciples, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, John is not going to give us a doctrinal statement throughout this book. This is not like Romans. There are loads of doctrinal truths in 1 John, but 1 John is not written the way Romans or Philippians is written. John is amalgamating ideas, and he is teaching believers to press on and to understand things like light and darkness and children of God and children of the evil one, and he's teaching them all these things, but there's no clear doctrine. There's no... There's no chapter that is devoted to explaining explicitly what happened when the life was manifested, but John does give us clues throughout this book. He tells us at one point that God the Father sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. He tells us in chapter 2, notice that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that He is the mediator, and that He is the perfectly righteous one, that you, if you are in Jesus, have a perfectly righteous representative. I don't know if there's anything more comforting than that because every day we will sin and we will fail and we will fall on our faces and every day we need an advocate with the Father and we need a representative and we need to know that we have one who stands as a representative head before the Father whoever lives to make intercession for us, who is an advocate to us. And John will tell us that we have cleansing through his blood. John will speak of the forgiveness of our sins throughout this book. Notice verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, that what Christ has accomplished is the forgiveness of sins, that he's turned away the Father's wrath, that John will give all those clues to what Jesus has done and why the life was manifested. There is a There's a chapter by James Henley Thornwell on the priesthood of Christ. And the priesthood of Christ touches most closely to what he does at the cross. And whether you agree with this or not, I think it's a fascinating thought that Thornwell actually argues that the book of Hebrews devotes so much to... Crucifixion of Jesus and to his priestly work as sacrifice and as inter, inter, and as the intercessory high priest, because conceivably Jesus could have exercised his office as prophet and priest, a prophet and king from heaven, could have spoken God's word to us. He could have he, he could have exercised his authority without being incarnate, but that in order for him to be priest, he had to be manifest. He had to take flesh to himself. The word had to become flesh. It takes us back to Psalm 40, right? A body you have prepared for me. That he had to come to be the obedient sacrifice. He had to come to lay down his life for us. He had to be manifested in order to die for us. And I think John would say to us tonight, as he is saying to his readers here, that Whatever your thoughts are about religion and spirituality, whatever you hear others talk about, whatever ideas people may have, make sure you know this much, that Jesus Christ, his person and his work, that he is God, he is from the beginning, that he was manifest in the flesh, that he is fully man, that he came to redeem us, that that is the foundation of all true saving fellowship. That's what it means to be in the inner ring. If you know Jesus, then you have fellowship. Notice what he says in, the, in verse 3. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are not adopted. Let me say this again. We are not adopted because of God the Father. We are not adopted because of God the Holy Spirit. We are not justified By God the Father, we are justified in Jesus, the righteous one. We are adopted. John will tell us, as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. We are adopted in Jesus. We are justified in Jesus. We are sanctified in Jesus. He is the source, Paul will tell us, of God the Father. You are in Christ Jesus, who himself has become wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that he is the only source of all that we need. And that's wonderful, because that means we go back to Jesus over and over and over again, and we stay close to Jesus, and we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and we are to be found looking to Jesus, and we call on Jesus. I love that quote by Adolphe Monat where he said, I think of him so often. I pray to him so often. I call upon him so often. I meditate on him so often that he were, if he were not God and God in the highest sense of that word, it would be idolatry. I love that. I call on him so often. I pray to him so often. I think of him so often. I meditate on him so often that if he were not God and God in the highest sense of that word, then it would be idolatry. John is telling us Far from being idolatry, that Jesus, the life who's from the beginning and whose work in redemption to redeem us, is the foundation of our fellowship. But secondly, and it's wonderful that John gives us what he gives us now in these next couple verses, he gives us a witness to Jesus because while we could say it would have been enough for God the Father to have spoken, you know, we read tonight about Gideon and Gideon wanted to put the fleece out. God had said, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you the victory of the Midianites. Gideon, like Thomas in the Gospels, wanted some kind of tangible sign. He wanted to see something to help bolster his faith. And God could have said, nope, I've told you, you're going to get the victory. God could have said that he accomplished all the work of redemption, in the person of Jesus without a single person having seen it. I know you're going to argue with me and say, but that's not what he did, and so he couldn't have done that. Conceivably, God could have snuck into this world real sneaky-like, created a body for himself. Nobody knew. Nobody saw him. Conceivably, he could have He could have accomplished redemption and then told us, I've done that. Now, I know it had to be public. I know the Virgin Mary had to have the Lord Jesus. I know that everything that happened had to happen. But conceivably, it would have been enough if God could have done that and would have done that to then have told us, Now you are to believe in my son for life. And we would have had to believe. And yet, our God is so kind that he doesn't leave us without a witness. And John tells us, notice, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, we have seen, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Notice verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you might have fellowship with us. Now, I think it's interesting that John doesn't just say, That which we have seen and heard, we reveal to you and bear witness to you so that you will have fellowship with us. He does it three times. That which we have seen and heard, we have looked upon, our hands have handled. That which we have seen and heard, that which we have seen and heard. John wants you to know that the apostles saw Jesus and heard Jesus and handled him, that he was not a spirit, that he was not a disembodied spirit, that he was not an apparition, that he was not a figment of their imagination as the Gnostics would would talk about the separation of body and spirit and the uselessness of the body. And John is saying, no, the body of Jesus is crucial. The the man Christ Jesus, seeing that he was very man of very man, is essential. And we saw him and we heard him and we even touched him. Think about that. John, no doubt, is talking about when he lay back on Jesus in the Gospel of John as they reclined at the table and, and as he rested on the Savior, and no doubt he's thinking about Thomas. After the resurrection, even after the resurrection, we handled him. Thomas, see my hands and see my feet, and here, put your hand in my side. They saw him, and they heard him. John will tell us in first in his gospel, and, and I think this is one of those verses that's pregnant with meaning when he says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory i think our minds rush to the transfiguration and we think of john seeing that that glory seeing that that prelude to the eternal glory the same glory that he'll see when he's on the island of patmos at the end of his life and The Spirit catches him up and he sees the one whose face shone like the sun and whose hair was white and glistening and he saw the glory of Jesus. He saw him on the mountain. He saw the deity of Jesus bursting through the humanity. He was there. Peter saw it. James saw it. This is huge. The Christ that we worship was seen by men. Paul actually makes a big deal about that when he uses a little hymn In 1 Timothy, and he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, and then he'll say down in that little hymn, seen by men and seen by angels, that he was witness to, that your faith is founded on the, the historical Jesus who walked on the same planet that you walk on. He walked on the same earth that you walked on. He spoke, and they heard him, and they saw him, and they beheld his glory. I love this statement Um, one old writer says about John seeing Christ in the flesh. He said, he saw him in the flesh. He beheld him on the Mount of Transfiguration when he shone forth in majesty and glory. He saw him transfixed on the cross. I want you to think about this. The John who's writing this stood at the foot of the cross. He was the only disciple that stayed. John is in a unique place to tell us what he tells us. Listen to this. He saw him transfixed on the cross. He saw him in in his agony and bloody sweat. He saw him as he hung a breathless corpse on the tree. He saw him pierced in his side by a soldier when blood and water flowed out in consequence of the bag which surrounded the heart being touched by the spear which entered it. He saw and conversed with our Lord after he was risen from the dead during his continuance in his resurrection state. He saw him when he left our world and ascended up on high and sat down at the right hand of God. He saw him after his entrance and coronation in heaven in a vision on the Isle of Patmos, at which time he was so struck with the glory, majesty, dignity, and shine of his visionary appearance that he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead and you think this John is telling us that what Peter tells us in 2 Peter we are not following cunningly devised fables that what your faith and my faith are grounded on is the surest and most certain and most true thing. Now that's important because when the false teaching comes in And when the attacks of the evil one comes in and when unbelieving friends say ridiculous things that are completely not true and they say them all the time and you see things on television that are not true and you think, well, yeah, that doesn't affect me. And then when the hard times come and the trials come and the difficulties come and your faith gets shaken, we need to return here. This is where we come back to. John is saying this is where we keep coming back to. We keep coming back to the fact that Jesus is the eternal word who was manifested, who was witnessed to, who has been proclaimed to us and declared to us so that you may continue to believe. Finally, quickly, John tells us the purpose of all this. Notice verse 4. Verse 3, he said, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things that your joy may be full. Two things John's accomplishing here. Number one, John wants you to value the fellowship that Jesus has purchased for you and that he has brought you into with God more than everything. And he wants you to, he wants you to fellowship, value the fellowship you have with other believers. 1 John, by the way, we've titled this series, For the Love of God and Men. John, everything John's going to say is about loving God, loving fellow believers, loving even our enemies, loving God, loving men, knowing that we're in fellowship because we love fellowship with the Father and Son more than any other fellowship knowing that we are in true fellowship with God because we love the fellowship of the saints more than any other fellowship. You know, I I pulled back as much as I could from writing something the other day online, but I fear that so many Christians, Reformed churches, Pentecostal churches, whatever, look look at the church as just another social notch on their belt. I'm sure we have it here at New Covenant. It's Another thing, make sure you have that. Make sure you have this. John is telling us that somebody who has been redeemed by Jesus, somebody who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, loves the fellowship they have with the Godhead and the fellowship that they have with God's people more than every other fellowship in the world. They don't love the fellowships they're engaged in six days a week more than they love the inner ring of the triune God and his people. They love that the most. That is the inner ring. That's where we want to be. John is saying that is what we want to value. We want to value that more than any other so so, so I'm sorry, social circle of fellowship that we may find in our lives. We want to value that supremely. And then notice what he says finally. He says the other purpose is that you would have joy. You know. I I wrestle with this in my own life, joylessness, contentment, and I'm sure you wrestle with those things. The secret to knowing lasting joy is getting what John says in these first four verses. That's the secret. Knowing that the life was manifested, knowing that he's from the beginning, knowing that he was with the Father and was manifested to us, knowing that he has been born witness to by those who saw him and heard him and spoke to him and touched him, knowing that our faith is founded on Jesus produces deep and abiding and lasting joy. I love at the end of the Gospels, I don't know if I asked you tonight and asked for you to just blurt out, what does... What does Jesus say to the disciples at the end of the Gospels repeatedly? There's one thing that he says to them repeatedly. He says, peace be with you and rejoice. Peace be with you, rejoice. Jesus wants you to have joy. Do you believe that? I want to ask you tonight, do you believe that God wants you to have joy? Do you believe that God wants you to be built up with joy inexpressible and full of glory? He sent Jesus into the world so that you might be brought into that inner ring of fellowship so that your joy, our joy together, might be full. Let him who has ears to hear this evening, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us grace that we might see that fellowship with you and your Son is the greatest and the highest and the most magnificent fellowship and circle and inner ring of fellowship that we could ever experience and father we pray that secondarily we would see that fellowship with your people would be that greatest organization of loving community and fellowship and joy we pray our god that you would unite our hearts together that we might be one in christ and one with each other and that uh, you would give us grace that we might continue believing that jesus is the son of god and that He has been manifested in the flesh. And we pray, our Father, that you would give us the joy inexpressible and full of glory that is ours in Christ. We pray that you would build us up in him and establish us in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.